Not long ago, I let Pastor Matt know when he was asking Calvin and I about whether we would be interested in speaking on Sunday evening, I just told him that when we got to the younger men's section, I would be willing to take that. They're gone this weekend. And so he decided that we're going to do younger men today, and it's my assignment. We're going to have him come back and pick up the text related to younger women at a later date. So I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to place the text in its context. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, was a break, and it began a section that includes the specific injunction that we're considering tonight. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so teach, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. At first glance, it appears that younger men have been shortchanged. Every other address group receives multiple instructions, while younger men are issued a single imperative. Appearances may be deceiving, especially when the original text is in a different language than the translations that we read. If we go back to the original language, we discover that the punctuation followed in the translation we just read does not match that of the original. The closing section, or the closing sentence in this section does begin at the beginning of verse 6. That matches. But it does not conclude until the end of verse 8. Furthermore, the very first punctuation that appears, a comma, in that sentence does not appear until the middle of verse 7. This has led reliable, trustworthy translations to come up with interesting but not conflicting variations of these three verses. I'd like for us to compare several of them quickly. The first one is the one that we read from, verse 6, just a few minutes ago. It's the English Standard Version. It reads, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Notice the period. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's the ESV. Now let's quickly look at the New American Standard. It reads, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, semicolon, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Very similar, slight variation. Now let's notice the New King James. New King James reads, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Comma. A little bit different. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, 
that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. I'd like for us to look at one more translation, and it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If you have circulated at all in Southern Baptist circles, you have heard about the Holman, and it is a trustworthy translation. Notice how it reads. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Notice where the period falls. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. Only one of these, the one we just read, the Holman, follows the punctuation found in the original language. Two of them compromise with the punctuation, inserting a common, comma or a semicolon earlier than appears in the original text. Only one of them, the ESV, completely ignores the original punctuation, placing a period at the end of verse 6. So that's one contrast. Another contrast we see is that two of them, the ESV and the Holman, translate the imperative in verse 6 to be self-controlled. The NASB translates the imperative as be sensible. The New King James translates it as be sober-minded. So the question that begs to be answered is how could conservative scholars come up with this range of variations? To answer that question, we must examine the original words and their range of meanings to answer that. In so doing, there's a depth of riches to be mined. We're going to focus on four terms found in verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7, and the first term we're going to look at is parakaleii. Parakaleii, which is the present imperative of parakaleo. It literally means to implore, to appeal to, to entreat, and it also means to call to one side or to summon. This is how Titus was to address this final group. It's from the same word group that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. You may have heard the Holy Spirit named as the paraclete, exact same word group. It's used to describe the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the lives of believers. Next term, neoterus, which is the plural of neos, literally means young men. This is the group to be addressed. Now, we have certain ideas that immediately spring to mind when we hear the term young man or young men. Current thinking would confine this to a much narrower band than Paul would have had in mind. John MacArthur explains, how young is young? Well, men, you're going to rejoice to know that this relates to anyone under 60. You would consider yourself to be young, enjoy it while you can. It refers, generally speaking, to men under 60, since 60 seems to not only be the cultural breakpoint at that time, but even the one which Paul identifies in 1 Timothy when he talks about widows who are over the age of 60. So young men fills a large category, then somewhere from, say, 20 or there to 60 or thereabouts. This is the time when men are still basically virile, strong, aggressive to one degree or another, and healthy and somewhat ambitious. That's the second term. Third term, quickly, is sophronein. This is the present infinitive of sophroneo. Literally, it means to be of sound mind, 
to be reasonable, to be sensible, to be serious, to keep one's head. And a summation of it is to be self-controlled. In the original, the infinitive has the form to do something or to be doing something. So it's telling Paul to tell these young men to be doing this. The range of meanings in this rich word is the source of the variations we noted in the translations of the imperative in verse 6. Two of them utilize one of the literal meanings. Be sensible, be sober-minded. The other two attempt to include the entire range of meanings with a summarizing imperative, be self-controlled. One more word, and then we'll move quickly. Panta. It is the first word in verse 7. It's following this word that the first punctuation, a comma, occurs in the original language. The word from which it derives means including everything to the highest degree or all the whole. Panta specifically, this specific form specifically means all things or everything in the absolute sense. No equivocation. It's everything. When you consider the punctuation in the original text and the depth of meaning of the original terms used in verse 6 and in the beginning of verse 7, the best translation then seems to be, at least in English, seems to be that of the Holman. It reads again, In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, period. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. Since young men are given this single imperative and then Paul turns to addressing Titus, we may still wonder whether this group was shortchanged. MacArthur explains why this is not true. He asks, is there only one verse? Verse 6, briefly addressed to young men, and then he goes on to talk to Titus. No, I think the whole thing relates to young men. And what he says to young men in general in verse 6, he says to Titus in specific in verses 7 and 8. Because Titus is to be the example to all young men. This is setting a pace of spiritual character and spiritual devotion that he couldn't set for older men, not having reached that point in life. And he couldn't set it for older women or younger women because he does not know fully and personally that role. This young man is his group. And so he's called on not only to exhort them in verse 6, but to set the example for them in verses 7 and 8. All of it then relates through him to the young men. We are going to leave the specifics of Titus' example to a later study. In the time that we have remaining tonight, I'd like for us to very quickly consider three observations related to the single imperative in verse 6. And the first observation is one of those Captain Obvious ones. It is that the imperative to younger men covers all of life. Younger men are to be self-controlled in everything. The word in the original text, as we have mentioned, is in the absolute sense. There's no shading of the meaning. This self-control is not to be exercised part of the time or even most of the time. It's to be exercised at all times 
and under all circumstances, in everything. One commentator explains, in all things, how many? Now think about this quantitative word for a moment. If this is the instruction, how can we possibly hope to successfully obey this exhortation day by day, moment by no moment? To paraphrase Major Ian Thomas, the truth is that we can't. And he, that is God, never said we could. But he can. And he always said he would. How? We have access to the supernatural enabling power of the indwelling spirit of Christ. Self-control is not usually what we think of when we think of younger men. This, however, is the imperative. And this imperative is needed because of the dangers younger men face. This has been true throughout the ages. In a sermon by John Angle James preached in Cars Lane's meeting house on Sunday evening, January 4th, 1824. Catch that date. 1824, almost two centuries ago. He declared, I wish it were possible, young men, for me to disclose to you the deep solicitude and earnest desire for your welfare with which I meet you this evening and commence this effort of ministerial fidelity. Such a knowledge of my feelings and my motives would ensure me of your serious and, serious and candid attention. In selecting you as the special objects of my address... I have been influenced by a painful conviction, which I would be glad to have disproved, that there was scarcely ever a period when such admonitions as those which I shall deliver on the present occasion were more needed by people of your gender and age, without pretending to say that the youth of this generation are more corrupt than those of former times, I will assert that their moral interests are now exposed from various causes to very imminent peril. That is just as true today as it was two centuries ago. A contemporary of ours, Stephen Cole, wrote, Marla and I read the book Over the Edge, which chronicles all the deaths that have occurred in the Grand Canyon. The authors conclude that the most vulnerable group at the Grand Canyon is guess young men who think they're invincible to prove their bravado they do foolish things but the extreme conditions in the canyon often take their toll John MacArthur identified several of the dangers that pertain especially to this age group they include one laziness or indulgence now, we have to admit, this is innate in being fallen creatures. Lazy men are produced when they lack discipline because they were never taught to be constructive. Left to do what they please, young men will choose to do nothing beneficial. That's human nature. Danger one, laziness. Danger two is freedom. This happens when young people are turned loose from family accountability too soon, too fast, and too far. When they begin to do what they please, they usually please to do what is not honoring to God or productive. Freedom's a danger. Third danger is decadent culture. Young men raised in a decadent culture are accustomed to vice. 
I don't know that that has ever been more true than it is today. Anyone who has access to internet or any of those social media is exposed to our decadent culture. Here's the problem with that. Familiarity, unfortunately, with vice does not produce disgust. That's what we would hope that it would do. Familiarity with vice does not produce disgust, it produces attachment. So young men are in danger from a decadent culture. And the last one is the Captain Obvious one of all times, and it's immaturity. Somebody once said that it's too bad youth has to be wasted on the young. But that's how it is. Youth, because it's youth, is immature. For example, temptation is strongest in youth. Lusts are more compelling at that time. Habits are formed that rarely can be killed, even in old age. Youth is a time that presents more opportunity for sin. Youth is a time when ambition is strong, when pride is controlling. Youth is a time of unwarranted confidence. Confidence you don't deserve because it's never been tested, never been proven. It's a time of imagined invincibility. It's a time of lacking experience. And experience mellows and softens and brings reality. It is a dangerous, dangerous time. My guess, as I've read that list, is you've probably thought that that does not end at age 20 or 21 or 25 or 30 or 35. We could keep going, couldn't we? This imperative is needed because the stakes are so high. Stephen Cole observed, as you know, it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but it can be lost in a single foolish action. Once lost, it is a long, difficult process to recover it again. Cole also relates, when I was younger, I used to wonder what David meant when he prayed in Psalm 25, 7, do not remember the sins of my youth. Cole says, now that I'm older, I understand. The sins of my youth were all the foolish things that I said and did out of youthful pride. Thankfully, none of them resulted in my premature death. But that's only due to God's grace. You see, habits formed that keep popping back up are only the tip of the iceberg. The stakes are enormous, which leads to a second observation, and that is that this imperative is unachievable apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul addressed the dangers young men and all of us face and the necessity of walking by the Spirit. I'm going to give you just a moment to turn in your text to Galatians 5, and we're going to pick it up at verse 16. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 16. Here we find these words. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is a nasty list. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we are at the verse that we usually parachute into this text and not look at the context. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and notice the last descriptive word, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All of the dangers younger men are especially prone to are found in this description of the works of the flesh. The antidote is walking by the Spirit, allowing Him to produce His fruit in our lives. And one aspect of that, fruit, is self-control. We will never achieve perfection this side of heaven, and when we fail, we must quickly repent. Luther explained, Christians also fall and perform the lusts of the flesh. David fell horribly into adultery. Peter also fell grievously when he denied Christ. However great as these sins were, they were not committed to spite God, but from weakness. When their sins were brought to their attention, these men did not obstinately continue in their sin, but repented. Those who sin through weakness are not denied pardon as long as they rise again and cease to sin. There's nothing worse than to continue in sin. If they do not repent but obstinately continue to fulfill the desires of the flesh, it's a sure sign that they're not sincere. This imperative requires the aid of the Holy Spirit, but it also requires obedience to God's word. Psalm 119.9 asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? It immediately answers by saying, by keeping it according to your word. If you're going to be self-controlled, you must line your life up with his word. After challenging young men to live in such a way that they have joy in life by remembering their creator in the days of their youth, Solomon summarized the importance of obedience. In Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, he said, The end of the matter, all has been hurt. Here's the bottom line. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. Younger men need to live their lives in obedience to God's word so that, they can, so that when they grow old, they can enjoy the memories. This imperative also requires crucifying the flesh. Paul followed his exhortation to let the fruit of the Spirit flow by explaining that the means to doing this is by crucifying the flesh. Quickly flip back to Galatians 5, and we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. Same section, same thought process. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
Crucified here, obviously, is a very important word. Paul could have simply chosen the word killed, but he used the word crucified because it speaks of multiple things. It reminds us of what Christ did for us on the cross. It reminds us that we're called to take up our cross and to follow him, as we were reminded this morning. It reminds us that the death of the flesh is often painful. And it also reminds us that our flesh must be dealt with decisively. Interestingly, this speaks of something the believer does, being directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Guzik writes, The old man, the self-inherited from Adam, is crucified with Jesus as the sovereign work of God when we're born again. Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. We're simply told to reckon or account the old man as dead. We're not told to put him to death. But the flesh is another matter. We're called to choose to work with God to do to the flesh exactly what God did all by himself to the old man. Crucify the flesh. The problem of our flesh will not be dealt with finally until we are resurrected. Until then, we are to constantly nail it to the cross so that it hangs there alive yet powerless over us. Luther wrote, to resist, resist the flesh is to nail it to the cross. Although the flesh is still alive, it cannot very well act upon its desires because it is bound and nailed to the cross. The good news is that we do not have to do even this by ourselves. As we keep in step with the Spirit, He helps us keep the flesh nailed to the cross. And quickly, one last observation. The imperative to younger men, and this is why I wanted all of you to stay here, it applies to all believers. If we look back in Titus 2, and we look at verse 2, we see that this imperative applies to older men. You may have noticed that one of the specific imperatives listed for older men was that of being self-controlled. For older men to be honorable and dignified and spiritually healthy, they must be self-controlled. So the injunction to follow, allow the fruit of the Spirit to flow, applies to them as well. If we look at verses 3 and 4 of Titus chapter 2, we see that this imperative also applies to older women. If older women are to be reverent or dignified in behavior, avoiding the temptation to harm others with their tongues, that's being slanderers, and able to teach what is good, they will have to be self-controlled. The injunction to allow the fruit of the Spirit to flow applies to them as well. We've not looked at it yet, but sneak peek, verses 4 and 5, the imperative also applies to younger women. Younger women are to be trained by older women to not only love their husbands and children, but to specifically be Self-controlled. You see, if they fail to be self-controlled, they will not be content to work at home, they will not be kind to all, and they will not be submissive to their husbands. 
this failure will result in the Word of God being reviled. So the injunction to allow the fruit of the Spirit to flow applies to them as well. Beloved, our testimony to the world, our effectiveness in building one another up depends upon our cooperation with the Holy Spirit in crucifying the flesh and allowing His fruit to flow. This is critical for all of us. But it is especially critical for men in a manner that is very unique to our age. In his book, Healing the Masculine Soul, Gordon Dalby says, and I quote, Men do not know who they are as men. Let me repeat that. Men do not know who they are as men. He goes on to say, they only know what they do. They don't know what they are. We men need to know who we are, and we need to be who God wants us to be. USA Today reports that men in our world are confused, frustrated, unsure of themselves as compared to men even 30 years ago. It goes on to say, and this is USA Today, it goes on to say that we have been blasted by women to the point where we are now the weaker sex. Men especially need this, but we all do. If we are to have a compelling testimony, we all must join younger men in accepting what God's Word says about what we are and determining that we will be self-controlled by crucifying our flesh daily and allowing the Holy Spirit to produce His fruit in our lives. Here is the best news of all. God is ready. God is willing and God is able to help. May we resolve with his help to obey his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which accurately portrays who we are and what we do apart from your help through the control of your spirit. Father, we recognize that though we wish it were not true, we are in a battle with our flesh until the day you take us to be with yourself or your son comes to take us to himself. Until then, your word tells us that with your spirit's help, we are to crucify that flesh that wants to take us into all of these dangers. Forgive us for all of the times that we simply try to do things in our own strength and we let the flesh have its way. Help us this day, this week, to allow your spirit to give us the strength to nail that flesh to the cross and to let your spirit produce his fruit in our lives to your glory. We thank you that this is a prayer you are ready, willing, and eager to answer. And we thank you in advance for what you will do in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.